cliffcentral.com. Durban-based journalist Glynis Horning and her husband Chris woke up one Sunday morning to a horrific and devastating discovery that their 25-year-old son Spencer had died in his bed. Surrounded by loving family and friends, she's pieced together the puzzle of his death and she's written an incredible book about loss and grief, something which I hope will be able to help those of us who are going through similar situations. Um, but also, apart from loss and grief, it's about the joys of celebrating someone's life when they're no longer there. It's called Waterboy, and I think it'll touch anybody who's directly or indirectly experienced this kind of ultimate heartbreak. I mean, people will tell you all over the world and in any age and in any social difference or background or uh, or change or difficulty that there probably isn't a harder thing in the whole world than for a parent to lose their child. But we'll talk to Glynis today, and I'm glad to have Glynis as part of the show. So first of all, Glynis, thank you very much for making yourself available, and it's great to see you. And congratulations on a book which must have been extremely difficult to write and a life so far which has been more than slightly difficult to lead. It has indeed. Thank you very much for having me on your program. Um, if there's any way we can help other people through what happened to my son um, to help them avoid getting into that situation or help them deal with it in any way. Um, but that's all that one can ask. And so thank you for allowing us to do that through your program. Uh, sure, Glynis. And, and let's just talk about you for a second before we get into the book or, or your life story. I mean, you're an award-winning freelance writer. You've done assignments from apartheid South Africa's townships to Rwanda and the refugee camps uh, to the Amazon, to Patagonia. I mean, this is an amazing, amazing CV that you have. You've got the Discovery Health Journalism Award for Best Health Consumer Reporting uh, and Feature Writing, the Pfizer Mental Health Journalism Award, and a Rosalind Carter Fellowship for Mental Health Journalism, um, among other things. It's it's quite an incredible uh, list of achievements. So, I mean, that's that's a that's a that's a firm background in journalism and something which equipped you rather better than the rest of us, to be able to write about what you eventually decided to do in Waterboy. Well, you might think so, but writing this kind of thing is so immensely personal. And for all the journalism I've done, it's always been a little bit removed. I mean, okay, I put myself into travel stories and things like that, but most of the other pieces I can keep a certain distance. But when it's this close um, and when you're sharing something, the sort of things that I haven't shared on things like Facebook or social media with other people. It's a different terrain. I could just pour out what was in my heart because I thought it had to touch other people who had been there. It was a, it was surely my most um, difficult assignment in many ways, but in, in other ways, um, the book kind of wrote itself because I think what comes out of a loss like this and the shock of it is that the only way to really deal with it is to work through it again and again and to be able to share it with empathetic others. And I was just, I am incredibly fortunate to have some amazing friends, including my three great school days friends who now are spread across the world, one in St. Louis in the States and one in Denmark and Copenhagen and the other in the Cape. And so as this was unfolding um, from the very first night, whether it was two in the morning, I could pour out my thoughts and what was going on inside me in WhatsApp messages <laughs> to these amazing people. And they would be there and it would just, they were sounding boards and they were 
muses in a way. They were voices of wisdom. They have come from very different backgrounds. And so in the end, the book also wrote itself around this backbone of these WhatsApp messages. So that's a new kind of journalism for me. It's not just sitting down, compiling the information, phoning the experts and putting together a feature or traveling to a country and doing all that kind of research. It was a different kind of writing and it was very immediate. And the book was almost being written as I was going through it in a way. Yeah, it, it was it was challenging, but in a way, I suppose, healing. Oh, yes. I mean, there must be some catharsis in this. And, and obviously, you know, anybody who's who's dealt with any loss in their lives know that you have to face up to it at some point. And there, there could be no more uh, difficult and, and, and straightforward way of facing up the, to it than to, to unleash your story into the public realm. Um, so that must have that must have been a, a, a thing that you thought about for a little while before you decided to put pen to paper. I didn't think about the writing of it. It was the putting it into the public realm because initially it was just going to be my record, like a diary. And then it kind of evolved from that. And then it grew to something else. And then I started to think maybe it could help others. And when I then decided to put it into a book form, which I was going to maybe bring out for myself and for the Trinity, as I called my three friends um, and, and, and a few other friends and, and close family, it kind of grew beyond that, and then it became, it got its own wings, as it were, and it, it became a book, and it was that decision to put it out into the public realm to open myself up, but I think that was very important, because something has to be done, I think, about the stigma that still surrounds it. I mean, the S word, it's people still battle to say suicide. Um, it's kind of one of the last taboos, and I remember even I initially going out into the world, people would hear we'd lost a son and they'd come up to me and say, oh, we're so sorry, what happened? And initially I discovered all I had to say was one word, depression. And people knew what had happened. But in a way I was hedging my bets because I wasn't using the actual word which so many people had to live with, which was suicide, which is the end result very often of very severe depression. And that was my son's problem. He had three problems. He had major depression. Um, he suffered from general anxiety disorder. And he also had an inherited genetic blood condition called thalassemia minor. It's not thal major, which is one that needs infusions regularly, etc. But thal minor means you've got slightly misshapen red blood cells, so they don't hold enough oxygen. So you're constantly a little bit tired, fatigued, lethargic. You just Your energy levels are low. So that coupled with anxiety and depression, was a, a triple whammy for our boy. He was a big, strapping, six-foot-tall, mountain-climbing, swimming, fit, wonderful young man. But as he sort of got out of his teenage years, I think maybe the iron levels at that stage were, were beginning to tell, as well as the growing anxiety and depression. I suppose from the world in general, you know, he was a very bright child, and he ended up with like a 90% matric aggregate and he got into study mechanical engineering at university. He, in fact, was offered a bursary to go and do genetic engineering at UCT, but he turned it down to stay here and do mech-eng. And he was a bright boy, so he had everything going for him. And to try and, yeah, to, to get all the energy that's needed for those very demanding studies is something else. The pressures that the world puts on you just to do the course is challenging. And um, yeah, the, the, the pressures, I think, just got too much. And as his energy levels got too low and his concentration was failing, 
uh, and fading, it was too difficult. And at the stage where we even got him in to his hematologist, um, she had said if he carried on running with his blood levels the way they were, he could have had a heart attack. So it, it was he was in a bad situation. I think trying to deal with the stresses of a very demanding degree on top of that. And uh, it was just it was just all too much. So, yeah, these were the well, sort of factors that fed into this. I'd I'd like to to unpack the story of of your son and and how and what you've learned from it and perhaps what we can help other people to understand about it in a second. But it is obviously um, World Suicide Prevention Day on the tenth of September, so we're in a month where that's very much front and center. And I think mental health has started to take a more um, a more important role and and a, and a and a role in society where it's no longer as taboo as it used to be and where people can talk about it more openly and more honestly and that can only be a good thing but suicide as you say is is there's still this stigma attached to it and people do jump to conclusions and there are a lot of old ways of thinking about this that involve shame and guilt and and, and really you know mental mental illness i don't know what your feeling is on this but mental illness if someone says they have the flu we go, oh, I hope you get better. And, you know, you kind of accept that the flu is something that people get. But if someone admits that they have a, a general anxiety disorder or that they're bipolar or that they have a, a clinical condition, something that has been diagnosed properly as a mental health issue, people almost get out of their way and think, oh, there's one for the lunatic asylum. Do, do you yeah. find that, that attitudes have changed? I mean, during your lifetime, they must have, you must be able to tell that there's an enormous amount of change. And and then with your experience, people perhaps open up to you more than ordinary people. Absolutely. I mean, I know just among my son's young friends, that we, the acceptance and the openness to this and the number of them who came to me and themselves have spoken about dealing with the same kind of things, with depression, with suicidality. Um, and and it's, it's out there. It's, it's so much bigger now. It really is. Um, which is really makes things a lot help, more helpful. But the, this whole the suicide part of it, particularly, is when people reach that stage, it becomes very difficult. People are still embarrassed to to express that. It seems to be, I suppose, sort of the, the ultimate horror. And there's also, I think, in certain cultures and certain religions, a stigma around it. And what, what really brought it home to me, Gareth, was, you know, the the nine eleven anniversary this last weekend, and. I don't know about you, but my abiding image, the most iconic image of the World Trade Centers, that terrible catastrophe where those 3,000 people died, was that image called the falling man of a man who obviously didn't have the choice. There was this inferno blazing behind him, so he chose to jump. And then a friend forwarded me a piece. Apparently, the photographer or whoever had traced the family of that man, and when they approached them about it. The family didn't want to know. They said, no, that couldn't have been our relative because he would not commit suicide. I mean, even if there's blaze behind you, the idea that he chose, I don't know, to take your own life rather than be good, I don't understand it. But that, to me, brought home the huge stigma around us and why people really battled to talk about it. What, um, what, what, what when you look back on this, and again, without guilt or, or shame on your part, because that can be as terrible as it is for the person who, who ultimately decides to take their own life. In fact, it could even be worse because you're left trying to answer questions that you don't have answers to, and you'll never get those answers. When you look back on it, do you feel that 
there are things that, that we as society can do to help these people more. People like your son who are, they look armed with all the things they need in order to have a successful and happy life. And perhaps, you know, some of us are less well-armed. Some of us might have physical conditions. We may have brain chemistry issues that are complex and difficult to, 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 to you know, explain in, in any serious or sensible way because we, we know so little about how the brain works. But are there things that you see in, in your own story that you think, well, perhaps people could do this and people could do that because if we had, we might have been able to make a difference? You know, it's a very difficult one because we thought we had covered all our options. I mean, we realized quite a few years before this that he had, had this, you know, terrible anxiety and depression. And so we, of course, had him in to get help. And he was with a psychiatrist and with a psychologist, and he was seeing them. So we kind of thought that we had covered the bases, as it were. But nothing quite prepares you. And I've had to look at this very carefully because... What had happened also the last year, he decided he wanted to wean himself off his medic medicines. A1, on them, he was more relaxed, better able to cope, but almost too relaxed because he was on the meds for the anxiety as well as for the depression. And then he would have to take something else to gear him up so he could finish a paper or do his exams. And it became a medication roller coaster. And although our boy was plodding along, kind of hanging in there, he was a slightly blurred slightly bloated he was picking up a bit of weight version of himself he was not he was not our boy i would look into his eyes and he was there but he wasn't spencer so he wanted to come off those meds and also he had this idea of maybe going to teach english as a foreign language and looking online it became apparent that quite a few of the places he had applied to there was a mention of have you ever taken any medication or ever been treated for a mental health problem and so it all, all came together and he wanted to come off. And he asked a psychiatrist and she said, okay, he seemed okay. Because my son always seemed okay. He was calm mm. and quiet and bright. And so he weaned himself off him carefully under her supervision. But, you know, looking back when you say, were there things, it's only after this happened that I went into that and researched some more. And there's, I mentioned it in the book, um, there's Robert Sapolsky, who's an amazing psychologist um, in the States, Stanford. And, and he is quoted as saying, you know, for all the side effects and, and the problems with, with medications, antidepressants and all that, there's still nothing more dangerous than unmedicated depression. And I kind of wished in a way that maybe the psychiatrist people had, had warned us this is an extremely dangerous period. You've really, really got to be on the preview and watch for any minor sign that there's a problem. Because later on, there were, there were I think, two occasions. Once my son used to fetch me from work. I do editing shifts um, uh, during the day and, uh, and the afternoons and evening, and I write stories, my, my speeches in the morning. And for my editing shifts, my son would fetch me in the car because he needed the car. He was teaching master maths while he was studying. And the one day I remember driving back and there was a tear trickling down his cheeks. I knew there was something not so good. I said, are you okay? No, I'm fine. And then a few weeks before he left forever, I found him in tears. And, and I said, what is it, my boy? Please, don't you want to go back on these meds? Go and, let's get you into the psychologist. What can we do? He said, no, mom, I'm fine. I can't go back on those meds. And he was very good at looking in control and masking. And part of me is that, you know, I suppose because you feel you blame yourself so much, you think, could the medical professionals 
maybe not have equipped us a bit more to be on the watch for that. Maybe what should I have done? Should I have forced him to go in and see one of them? Would it have helped? Wouldn't it have helped? I don't know. And then I think if he convinced me that he didn't need help and he didn't want it and he was coping, he would have convinced them of the same thing. And they're caring, professional women doing wonderful jobs. So but he actually know, can't blame anybody. It is what it no. is. And, and we've got to live with it. And, and, and I, I'm sure that you've seen uh, and, and spoken to many people. You talk about the, the, these friends of yours who you, you know, wrote the book with. It's so important that people don't fall into that habit that human beings have of, of trying to assign blame or thinking you could have done better. And when I asked the question, it wasn't because I was trying to find reasons for you to think that way, of course. Um, there are so many people who wonder about what they could have, should have, would have done if things were a little different. And it doesn't help. It's not going to change anything, right? Have, have you been seeing professional help since this happened? Because so many parents who've been through what you have just say there's no one who can ever understand it. It's the most horrible thing and most difficult thing to deal with. Well, I, I went for a couple of sessions, um, four sessions of grief counseling with the psychologist who had been treating my son. I thought at least I wanted to go through the backstory. And she was wonderful and understanding. And But, you know, she had not lost a son herself. And, and it's one of those situations where unless somebody has actually walked in your shoes, they don't yeah. really know what you're going through and how it keeps going back on you and how every night when you wake at 2 in the morning your thoughts churn, what could I have done? What could I have seen? What did I miss? How could this happen? I'm a person who writes largely on health and mental health. How could I have missed those things? What more could I have done? So, yeah, the self-blame goes on, and certainly the counseling does help. So if anybody's in this situation and they have lost somebody, I think there are two things. They need to have professional help to help them unpack and work through it with a psychologist or somebody, a grief counselor for a few sessions at least. Um, yeah, I, and then and, and time. it's a very difficult one. Garrett. Then they need support. The most thing is support from people who understand. And I had my support group from my Trinity, but a lot of people go to support groups. And I think that's the other, the other leg of this that would help prop people up. So go for counseling and then maybe find a support group of people who've lost somebody, preferably the same sort of loss you've had of a child specifically. Um, so that's there is a group powerful. called Solos, survivors yes. of, you know, of people who lost to suicide, and Solos can maybe help. Uh, and, yes, certainly, a group like that. So ask your psychologist or whatever to refer you to a group where there's somebody who's been through what you have so that you can open up to them. I think that's such useful advice, and there's so many people who benefit from it, just as they will from your book, which I think, you know, if, if anybody's gone through anything even remotely, like what you did, it's it's useful to hear it because you're so articulate about presenting the, the situation and explaining the feelings. You know, many people struggle to to actually describe what is going on and how they feel about that. And and obviously, with your extraordinary uh, journalistic career, you're able to to tell that story much more cogently than many people might be able to. Glynis, the the thing about medication, I'm interested in because. There are lots of people in society now who think that there's too much medication. You know, fully one-third of Americans are on some kind of antidepressant, uh, according to some statistics. There are many, many people in South Africa who, who are on chronic medication for mental health issues of, of one kind or another, and depression and anxiety are right at the top of that list. Um, but there is also this argument that 
you know, your son said to you he wanted to come off the meds because he felt more himself and you felt that he was turning into someone else when he came off the meds. There is the, the, the converse in the experience of so many parents watching their children who are put onto ADHD medication or something like that. And they say, well, my child has become numb and they've become sure they'll live, but they don't fully live. They don't fully express themselves. They don't reach the highs and lows that they might have before. And it's keeping them alive and it's allowing them to deal with all the difficulty that, that, that's going on in their life. But they're not really experiencing it. They're, they're kind of just they're existing rather than living. Is that something you've heard from other people who've dealt I with and medication? I have. But I mean, obviously, on, on the converse, I don't want to say meds it's helped them enormously and they've managed to push ahead and they're forging on in their lives, reaching for the stars. So for some people, they definitely are the answer. But I think it's a very fine balance. And my son, as I said, because of the blood condition, maybe that was one of the added factors. For him, it didn't work. For him, it would have been, to me, either you live a medicated life that kind of allows you to plod along on a certain level um, and dulls you enough to deal with it, or you live it and you feel it fully, and then the pain is just so great that you choose not to leave, to live, and you choose to leave on your own terms, which is what you did. And part of me, in a way, has also got to learn not just to accept that. I, I still can't accept that word is too hard for me. Even now, two years on, it was exactly two years on Wednesday this week, two days ago. I still can't accept that. But to acknowledge that it happened, I also need to kind of respect it in a way that if it was his only option, he, he just did it in such a considerate, kind, amazing way to make it as unmessy and as peaceful as he could for, for us left behind to help us reconcile his idea that you know he left a note and the final line of that is I am at peace and he tried to help us to cling on to that and, and that is something that we strive to do but it's really really difficult it really is yeah Linus, you brought up something which some people are very uncomfortable talking about and, and which has occurred to me because I've, I've read quite a lot of history and, you know, the, the old Stoics of ancient Rome, for example, used to look at a life well lived or a life that was no longer bearable and they would make the quite noble decision, in my opinion, of exiting stage left, you know, kind of taking their own life and, and they did it in much more messy ways, as you rightly put it, by... <laughs> kind of stabbing themselves in the throat as the great Cicero did because he refused to let them take him prisoner. Um, Seneca did something similar. Uh, there, was, there was the great Cato uh, who, who did this in the desert in North Africa. And, and they actually removed all the knives from him from that dinner, the last thing he went to. And he asked for a knife because he said his bread was stubborn. And they went off into the, into the desert and did the deed. And there is something about that which, because of, I think largely Christian religious doctrine that has made suicide seem like something which is cowardly and, 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 and unkind and, and thoughtless about the people you leave behind and insincere when in, in some ways, and, and again, this is hugely controversial in some ways, this is, it's being fully in control of your, your body and your mind. It's, it it's, 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 it it's the most, incredibly powerful expression of that and while none of us want to lose anyone to suicide and wherever it can be prevented i want to be clear 
we should do our best to prevent it. There is something so divinely autonomous about that decision that you kind of have to respect it. And, and if your son, if, you, if he left you a note and he did this on his own terms, there's, there's, there's nothing, you, can't, you have to respect it, right? You have to. I mean, in a way, I think back, he was a boy, he grew up watching anime and, you know, reading fantasy as well. And, and, and part of me almost thinks back to seppuku again, the sort of Japanese tradition of, you know, when it comes to the stage, you fall on your knife. I mean, it's, it's that kind of thing. And, and I, I think when you finally, finally made up your mind, if, if for you it's really not your way and you cannot see any other option and you've tried everything, I think it still takes enormous courage. Um, I just, you know, all our instincts in life are to hang on to life, whether, whether we see a snake in the grass next to us or we stand near a big drop next to us, we back away. Uh, bungee jumping becomes a thrill sport because you – you're playing at it. So anything that sort of threatens life has got to be the most terrifying thing. I mean, all your instincts should be pushing against it. So to actually choose to move towards it, it takes huge courage and it also maybe reflects, I think, just the enormous pain because the, the alternative is that bad. I mean, if living is that bad that you'd rather face death, it just it's not really a choice. In a way, it almost chooses you, I think, in a case like that. But so the, the obviously heart, I would they did just the, the devastation heart. that it leaves afterwards. Yeah. You know, I I I know my son would have understood that we would have been terribly sad. Um, and in fact when I found him in tears that day, he was saying to me over and over again, Mom, I'm sorry. I'm so, so sorry. And I didn't know I thought, why are you sorry? Are you sorry? Because I know he was applying for jobs because you know, because you're a bit down and, and and it's taken me longer to get my degree because at one stage I had to drop out for a while and I taught master maths because I was on medication. It was that, but in fact, looking back through the timeline, he was so sorry because I reckon that was the time he'd already written the note. So this was well premeditated. And it's, 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 it's totally heartbreaking. So, yeah, there was his choice. He obviously had to wrestle with this. And, and I also think he would have known, obviously, that, that I would have been devastated because I said to him, if anything happens to you, it will kill me. So then you look at this whole thing and you think, how could he still have done it? And those are the questions you wrestle with. And then you realize he had no choice because such was the pain he was in. You know, I don't think any of us, I didn't realize, as a journalist who wrote about it, realized the actual pain of very severe depression, really severe depression. And I know in the book, I think my friend in America messages me that, I think it was Levi Strauss, somebody was in Auschwitz and he survived that, but he could not survive depression. So I think we need to understand we're dealing with something really, really hectic and when people make this decision, if they absolutely have to and they do it like this, I don't know, I have to learn to just, yeah, to acknowledge it and I need to respect my boy and say this is what it is. Have to live with it, Gareth. I have to. You're doing a fine job of that. Um, and, and your book hopefully will help other people to, to do as good a job as is possible for them. Glynis, how are the rest of the family coping with this? You, you have another son. Um, what 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 is the what is the effect of this? Because this is the part that 
really stings and, and lasts for a very long time. How you it's will difficult. I mean, my, my husband is also not well. Um, I reveal at the start of the epilogue that, in fact, during this process, I noticed him getting slower and more bent, and I thought this is more than just grief. And it turns out that he's got Parkinson's. So it's not easy for him, but he's amazing. He never complains. He puts a smile on his face. He does what the way he lives the way we should all be living. He lives in these little things. He lives from, I'm going to get up now. I'm going to, I'm going to make you some coffee and some breakfast. We're going to be fine. I'm going to feed the dogs. I'm going to do the shopping. He's the house husband. He's, you know, he's, he's retired. He is at home. So he is amazing. And he keeps, he never complains about his condition or about anything else. Mm. But obviously it's a, it's a terrible blow because he was close to the boys. So close to the boy. And his brother has been amazing. He's got his younger brother who is also studying <laughs> at varsity, also engineering, also incredibly bright and very, he's just been so strong and he's so insightful. Um, you'll, in the book itself, um, I reveal his take on things. He leaves me some amazing messages and he talks to me in an amazing way. And his insights and his stability have helped to hold me together and all of us together. He's been extraordinary, but I understand the terrible pressure that it puts on everybody, the unhidden stuff, well, the, the unexposed stuff, the hidden stuff. You know, yeah. as also my friend Jill, who's in America of the Trinity, is at this moment just gone from St. Louis to New York for a few days, and she this morning messaged me the front cover of the latest People magazine. It's for the September 27th issue, and it's on suicide because it's it's... Anderson Cooper, um, yeah, the, the CNN anchor, Cooper yes. Anderson. Mm -hmm. And it's all about how he, he is the son of Gloria Vanderbilt, um, right. extraordinary American socialite from a huge wealthy family. And, and he apparently, in this, I haven't read the article, explains the pressures the family are under and how he's had to cope with his brother's suicide. So through things like that, you realize brothers have this, if you lose a brother to a suicide or any family member, it's huge. You know, David Bowie, <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't know if you know that he had an older brother, 10 years older than him, who he absolutely adored, and they were very close. Um, and later on, he started to have mental issues. He was schizophrenic. He ended up in an institution. He tried to jump, didn't work out. He'd occasionally escape and go walk about. My son went walk about once. You'll read about that in the book. And, and in the end, he either lay down or was pushed, uh, or, or, or jumped, sorry, not was pushed, but he either fell or he lay down in front of a train and, and he, he committed suicide. There's the words, committed suicide. Very un-PC, because these days we are all trying to not use the word commit because it sounds as though you commit murder, you commit adultery. But to me, well, also commit seppuku, so, you know, and, but and, you, and he and died by suicide. You also commit yourself to marriage and you also commit yes. yourself to goals. And you, yes. you know, we, we, we tend to get so wrapped up in language. We're always trying to find new words to make things euphemistic and acceptable in society. And really it is what it is. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm so moved by your story about, you, you know, your, your younger son and the way he's coping with this because that's really where strength of character is forged, if nowhere else. And I'm, I'm curious about what it is. Because I can see that you're still quite fragile um, and, and with every reason in the world. 
I mean, it's not something that you should at all be ashamed of. Um, and, and you speak about your son being so strong. How, how do you keep going on a day, daily basis? I mean, what, what do you wake up thinking and, and, and striving for? Because you could quite easily do what so many people who've been in the situation you're in, um, have done and just give up and, and kind of just fade away. And, and you, you're not doing that. You're writing a book. You're engaged in conversation with these friends of yours. You're looking out for your, your other son. You're, you're, you're caring for your husband too. You, you're making things happen, Glynis. This is, this is an incredible thing to see. And for those of us on the outside who can never feel what you feel, it's still tremendously inspiring to see you making your way. Oh, Gareth, when one tries, I wake up each day and say, one day, I'm just going to get through this day and, and something which one of my friends who also made an attempt to, to kill herself after her partner died of cancer had said to me right at the beginning, baby steps. So it's baby steps. You just get through this day and, and, and that will be okay. And, and, and little things, it's, it's, it's almost like the rituals that help you. You know, that, that first week, Gareth, um, Chris and I have always been swimmers, my husband. So we get up early and right from that very first week, we did the same thing. We get up at dawn, we get dressed, get in the car, drive to the swimming pool and put in our 40 lengths. And just swimming, just doing something, you know, yeah. it, it is, it's meditative and and it just anchors you and it, it grounds you for the day. So it's little things. I think any kind of exercise that people, if they're into gymming or gardening or running or walking, sure. um, you need to do that. It, it just grounds you in the present and it gets your endorphins flowing to a degree. It helps a bit. Uh, and this is another problem. You know, we mentioned the medications. I can't bring myself to take them. I've tried, you'll see in the book, occasionally my friends would bleat and I would try something to help me sleep or they'd send me recommendations and I'd try some kind of relaxant. But it's not worth it. Um, yeah, it is what it is. And I've got to learn to deal with it on that level. And so, yeah, we we try and eat healthily. We, we do what we need to do. and And we keep reaching out to people and we keep, Thank God, being fed support from our friends. So, yeah, each day must live on its own, its own basis, Gareth. Just make the most of I, it. I, I certainly wouldn't try to direct you there, but but you you kind of hinted at what I was hoping you would, which is a sense of purpose. And even if yeah. your purpose is in little rituals, even if it's in major responsibilities, you know, you eat the elephant one bite at a time, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and and. The, the people I've spoken to, uh, again, by no means is this generalized advice because, well, it is generalized advice. It's not specific advice because every person's experience of what you've gone through is so different. And thankfully, sure. thank God, many of us will never have to experience what you have. But the, the overwhelming and abiding thing that they say is that you can't really say anything to make them feel better. There's nothing that anyone can no magic words can be uttered that will suddenly make it go away. But you get used to the feeling and time eventually starts to make it less and less absolutely devastating. Um, and, and surely you've experienced that even though it's only been two years. Yeah, it, it does. You, you are able to cope more easily, be able to push it down and, and maybe choose your moments. And you're able to keep yourself busy with other things. Um, I think if you 
sit with empty time or you just pull the blankets over your head, your thoughts will just be free to churn. So in a way, even the editing shifts that I do during the day, you, you've got to live in that moment and focus on the sentence that you're editing. It concentrates you. It is, it's, it's meditation again. It takes whether you're concentrating on a breath or on what you're doing with your work or some hobby that you're passionate about. That sort of thing, I think, can help can help enormously too. I think that's that's important. Just keep occupied. Set yourself a purpose and keep going. I, I keep going because my husband needs me and I've got a, a young son who's still at varsity. And, you know, I've got friends that I love. And, I, and this world is extraordinary because I don't suffer from depression and anxiety because what I am suffering from is grief. I think it's sure. it's different. I can still walk and see the beauty around me. I mean, I, I, I walk the dog each day too. And just the weeds growing through the paving stones can look amazing, especially in the Durban sun now, it's springtime. And so there is still life. And I've got to hang on to that beauty. And this is what makes me so sad because I now realize that my son, I would walk with him. I'd walk the dogs with him. I walked the dogs with him the night before he died. He looked so calm. And I think that when you're that depressed, you reach the stage where you don't see that beauty or in a way it seems so indifferent to you that it almost hurts you and life just seems so bleak and colorless i don't think that it's so much the the blackness and the ugliness of depression i don't see it that way i think it more like bleeds the life out of things bleeds the color out and yeah that's sobering so i i don't have that thank goodness and that so I hold on to the beauties around me, the little things, those those weedy dandelion flowers growing in the pavement. They're, they're beautiful. They really are, Gareth. You see, the way you've just described that now is precisely why people have to read this book, um, because you have, a, you have a way with words that allows the rest of us to access things that perhaps we we don't, and we're fortunate not to have to, but also that some of us just can't. You know, people have to... You have to have a little bit of experience in this stuff to be able to have empathy. Um, what, what are the what are the things that make you feel good about the memories you have of your son? I mean, maybe it's walking past some, you know, some place that he really loved, uh, hearing a piece of music that he really loved. Because there are things that can connect you um, that make you feel a bit better than than other things. And and what are those things that are so hard to see and to and to feel and to hear? Uh, this is, I think, something which people who in their lives don't quite realize. My son had said also in his note, thanks for all the beautiful memories. I'll always be there in yours. And he is. He is. Of course he is. But I've got to say that even the really beautiful things like listening to music that reminds me of him or something silly watching Black Book or Faulty Towers and things that he loved, those things are kind of tinged because when you watch them, they're, they're still amazing, but there's a sadness because you know that you can never do it with them again. And even songs we used to enjoy together, it's, it's difficult. I think the book reflects too, um, but some music, music is particularly difficult. My friend who, who was suicidal and lost her husband to cancer that I mentioned, she warned me at the beginning, music's very difficult because There'll be a line or a lyric or something that takes you back to a moment that you were with that person and just the wrenching realization that you can never, never share that with them again. And that this is so permanent. I mean, so permanent. There are no degrees of permanency. It's permanent. And, yeah, that's another thing. I, I wonder sometimes whether people who take this route 
do accept and understand the, the total finality of it. There is no turning back. Yeah, so it's difficult. Anyway, you were asking me about memories, things that make me feel good. The thing I was dreading doing, my, my son was, <laughs> he was conceived in the mountains. He was called Figanembula <laughs> as his praise name by the old broom seller who arrived and had tea with my mom every day and used to sit under the trees because the day he was born, it was raining. So he was Figanembula, he who brings the rain. So right. he was always, that's where the name Waterboy comes from. And he's always loved the mountains and Every year that was our one ritual, we pile everything into our ancient car and we trundle up with our tents and camp in the Drakensberg. And so what we did was a year, a year after he had gone, and my youngest son and I, my husband was not able to cope because of the Parkinson's at that stage, but we were able to go up to the Berg and we put up a plaque for him. And I was I almost dreading it because... Those incredible happy memories, those wonderful Berg holidays and hikes we would do together and the kids bobbing for apples and those wonderful Berg streams. But, you know, it, it was I just felt incredible peace up there. It was so beautiful. And, yeah, we, we found a, a bench on one of the lower walks where there are such things as benches. We used to head up to the high mountains normally. And we got permission and we, we put a plaque up for our boy. And just being in those mountains and doing some amazing hikes with, with my youngest son. Yeah, it, it was very beautiful. And we could think of Spence and walking as meditative. It was helpful. It was healing. Well, you've got to do more of that then. Um, oh, you know, yeah. I would like to. Where it feels right, it probably is. Yeah. Uh, you, mentioned, you, mentioned, you mentioned permanence and, and temporariness. And really what makes life so difficult is that everything is temporary. You know, yeah. we're all going to go eventually. And and you you've had it all come to a head fairly quickly through no decision of your own or fault of your own or or or, or probably anything that anyone could have done to prevent what has happened, but it does suddenly bring into sharp focus the difference between those things that we think last forever, and that we perhaps take for granted, and those things that we accept from the beginning are temporary. You you know that your tea is not going to stay warm forever. You know that you're eventually have, going to have to say goodbye to your own parents. You know yes. that you're going to have to, you know, you'll, you'll probably move house and, and, and you'll probably say goodbye to things and people and places along the way that are going to upset you. But when you've had the experience that you've had, I'm curious about how your philosophy might have changed on things like permanence, temporariness. It's very difficult, yeah. Well... You realize that forever is forever, and you also look at your own mortality and the people around you, and, and you get these very sobering thoughts, and one doesn't want to dwell on them too much because I don't want to bring people down. There's enough grounds for depression, but you know, the realization, which I think my boy had, because he also read in the things that he, he said and did, the realization that looking around you right now, in 150 years, none of the people, maybe none of the animals, none of the dogs, none of the cats that, that we see here will be around anymore. And in a way, one lives life diverting oneself from, from that realization. Um, so it also means that to me, when you don't suffer from the depression, you've got to then hang on to and cherish every moment and live it as fully as you can. And I think that's what I've also done in Waterboy, what I've tried to bring in. It's, it's one year in our lives. It's from 
the morning that we discovered my son until exactly a year later. But in that period, it was already 40 years. My life's been pretty easy and relaxed. We've never had any big major crises. And then in that year, uh, you know, we lost my son. Within two weeks, this wonderful man who lived on our property and um, used to do the garden once a week for us in return for staying for free. And he became a family friend and his girlfriend moved in. He had also died. And, and, and then within a bit longer, you know, there were other deaths, including a grandmother. And, and looking at the difference in those deaths, you know, the one was a, a man who had been physically ill for a long time and he'd been living on borrowed time and you could, but it was a different kind of pain, but he'd lived a good life. He'd lived fully. And then I looked at the grandmother who'd lived a very long, very full life, achieved all kinds of things. And there was almost a, an air of, of, of lightness in the ceremonies and the little, you know, gatherings that were held after she died, it was so different with a boy who was on the cusp of stepping out into life. You know, he'd been done all his studies. He'd just graduated. he just lined up his very first job. He was going to start the next day, his first full-time job. I mean, he'd been teaching uh, part-time while he was studying. And to, for somebody, and he had so much potential. He was so bright and he was, to me, he had so much to offer the world. He had was so kind and so sensitive and so warm and all the qualities one would hope to keep in the world, but they were qualities that he was just maybe not for this world. I don't know. But yeah, you realize it's a very different kind of loss and permanence, temporary things. I don't yeah. uh, mean to put words in your mouth, but it does sound like you're saying what I think we're all thinking, which is that some deaths are easier to deal with and to bear yes. than others. Yes. And, and not, not all deaths are equal. Um, no, they're not. And I think that's a, that's that's true. We all know we feel it deep inside, right? I mean, we we know when someone's had a good full life and they come to the end of it. You kind of you you you're at peace with that, and and it's it's almost inevitable because that's the natural way. And the other thing I was thinking of when you were saying that is, is you talk about in a hundred years or two hundred years. I mean, in in a thousand years, nobody will even know that you you and I existed in the first place. Well, yeah. There may be some digs up something on the internet one day. Hopefully that's still going. But otherwise, there's, there's a very, very high likelihood that no one, I mean, they say even, you know, a grave is visited by maybe maximum of two generations after that person's death. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, we all become like these <laughs> the disembodied memories. And your memories of him are obviously very painful at the moment, but you must have many more good ones. And you know, the special time, 20, 25 years is as little as that, and it seems like you've been cheated. But 25 years is a is a, a good time to spend with someone. And oh, to, it is. And we did have amazing memories. Yeah. And he knew yeah. he knew he was loved. and Totally, totally. Yeah. Oh, no, there were wonderful happy memories. And, they, and he was, you know, and he could laugh and joke with the best of his friends. And, yeah. you know, so there, there, there's a lot of good times. And... Hopefully the book also is not just one big gray weed. I mean, <laughs> there's moments of liberty and brightness oh, sure. too. I mean, yeah. Look, Glynis, I mean, it's extraordinarily brave what you've done. Um, it's a horrible thing that you've had to go through. I think anyone who, who, who wants to understand and access the kind of experience you've had, because it will only help us to understand um, and, and, and perhaps even to help others to understand, you know, if you pass it along. Uh, this is a this is a brave thing to do. It's also a, a very cathartic and necessary experience for you. But as I said earlier, your ability to explain these things 
because of what you do for a living is is really paramount here and, and will allow so many other people into that world. And most of us need, I say most because there's probably a smattering of people somewhere who don't ever have to deal with any mental illness or depression. And, you know, bully for them. I mean, I, I, I wish them well. But for most of us, we'll meet someone, we'll know someone, we'll fall in love with someone. We'll have to say goodbye to someone who suffers from depression and, and, and all the other perhaps better or worse conditions that afflict the mind. And to have done this is a service to humanity of some kind. And I'm very grateful that you've managed to, to join us today to talk about it. Well done. Thank you so much, Gareth. And thanks for putting this out there and just getting the conversation going and hopefully encouraging people who need it to reach out for help and hopefully helping those who are able to help, who see what they think is depression, just a friend who's looking down for the for a day or somebody getting a bit tearful or somebody not coping or being a little bit irritable or that they will reach out to that person and say, hey, what's bugging you? Let's chat. Let's get together. If it can work that way, brilliantly. Well, your book is called Waterboy, Making Sense of My Son's Suicide by Glynis Horning. It is a great pleasure to have you on the show, and I wish you all the best with this book, and I hope we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much, Gareth. It's been great. Thank you, Glynis.